Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our July 2011 issue. Let's get started. The lead article in our July issue highlights a paradox concerning low cholesterol and high cardiovascular risk in depression. A link between low cholesterol and depression has been established in prospective and cross-sectional studies. Therefore, since high cholesterol is recognized as an important risk factor for cardiovascular disease, low cholesterol levels should reduce cardiovascular risk in depressed patients. Not so. Major depression has been shown to increase cardiovascular mortality in patients with or without pre-existing heart disease. So far, it is unknown whether pharmacologic antidepressant treatments improve cardiovascular risk, but on the other hand, various antidepressants have been shown to raise total cholesterol. In a cross-sectional study phase, the authors examined lipoprotein composition in 65 depressed patients and 33 healthy controls. In a prospective study phase, they studied lipoprotein composition in depressed patients during four weeks of treatment with mirtazapine or venlafaxine. These two drugs were chosen because they differ with respect to their propensity to induce short-term weight gain. Comparisons were made between the two drug groups and between remitters and non-remitters. In both drug groups, cardiovascular risk improved in remitters but deteriorated in non-responders. In depressed patients, lipoprotein structure had changed toward LDL particles with higher atherogenic potential. Remission was associated with an improvement in LDL to HDL ratio shifting lipoproteins towards a less atherogenic composition. The finding of small, dense LDL particles may lead to an understanding of this paradox of low cholesterol and high cardiovascular risk in depression. Depression entails not only dramatic personal disruption, but also huge medical and socioeconomic burden. Thus, slow antidepressant action and difficulty attaining remission are challenging issues. Our next group of authors point out that previous findings on antidepressant-enhancing strategies, such as adjunctive pindolol, have been controversial. In this study, they sought to examine whether SSRI action can be truly accelerated with optimized pindolol dosage. They conducted a randomized control trial in 30 depressed outpatients for six weeks. They administered pindolol or placebo adjunctive to citalopram, which was given intravenously for the first few days and orally thereafter. They then performed an updated meta-analysis of available randomized controlled trials, including this study, to assess whether pindolol improves antidepressant treatment outcome in patients with non-resistant depression. In their randomized trial, incremental doses of pindolol, together with adequate SSRI plasma levels from the very beginning, did show robust advantage in comparison to placebo and without appearance of potential adverse effects. 
clinical improvement was quicker and more marked in patients treated with adjunctive pindolol. Pindolol gave rise to a five-fold likelihood of achieving remission within the trial period, and patients who received pindolol took 65% less time to achieve response. The updated meta-analysis confirmed the hastening effect of pindolol in patients with non-resistant depression. The effect took place mostly at two weeks, but remained beyond a month. In fact, there is evidence of beneficial effect one year after having had pindolol for the initial six weeks of treatment. It remains unclear how long an antidepressant trial should be continued when no signs of improvement have yet been observed. If clinicians give up too soon, they risk aborting a trial potentially just when it was on the verge of being helpful. If clinicians extend a trial too long, they risk unnecessarily prolonging morbidity while engendering disillusionment with somatic treatment. Despite the clear clinical relevance of this issue, only a handful of studies to date have attempted to address the issue directly. The authors of this next article analyzed the results of a 12-week trial of fluoxetine in a large cohort of subjects in order to better ascertain the benefits of continued antidepressant therapy in previously unimproved subjects. They found that a significant minority of depressed patients responded to continued treatment with fluoxetine even when no improvement had been observed after four, six, or eight weeks of treatment. The authors believe that these results may allow clinicians to more accurately judge the likelihood of benefit from continued antidepressant therapy. With certain exceptions, the dsm 4 excludes persons who are grieving the loss of a loved one from being diagnosed with a major depressive episode, as depression is regarded as a normal part of the grieving process. A group of French investigators challenged the notion that persons excluded from diagnosis of major depressive episode because of bereavement would respond differently to treatment than patients with a major depressive episode. A group of more than 1,100 individuals who met dsm 4 criteria for major depressive episode, except that they also met the bereavement exclusion, was matched with patients with a major depressive episode. The two groups were assessed for outcome after six weeks of treatment. The researchers found that depressed individuals who were excluded from diagnosis by the bereavement criterion had higher levels of dsm 4 major depressive symptoms and self-rated depression than did patients who had major depressive episode without the bereavement exclusion. Both groups had a similar six-week outcome, responding to treatment at similar rates, and a similar percentage of patients no longer met dsm 4 criteria for major depressive episodes at follow-up. The investigators concluded that the dsm 4 bereavement exclusion is inadequate, at least in this sample of individuals seeking treatment for depressive symptoms. They proposed that bereavement, just like any stressful event, could be noted but without affecting the treatment decision. At many points in the history of pharmacology, drug effects have been discovered by serendipity. Even if they were unexpected, though, these discoveries happened because of careful clinical observations. Clinical drug trials, in particular, are based on quantitative research methods that are good for testing hypotheses, but aren't so good for discovering unexpected phenomena. 
a wealth of qualitative information that could lead to unexpected discoveries may be missed. With this problem in mind, a group of researchers from Australia looked at how qualitative methods could be included in early-phase drug trials for schizophrenia. They used data from a previous study of N-acetylcysteine and found that they could replicate the quantitative findings using qualitative methods. More importantly, they found additional information that the first study didn't find. The qualitative methods in the current study show differences between the two treatment groups in positive and affective symptoms. In fact, the qualitative data from this study led to a positive trial of the same drug for bipolar disorder. Based on their robust findings, the authors strongly encourage the use of these methods in future studies. Our next article on sudden death in psychiatric patients has been highlighted by the Doctor's Channel of YouTube and has been widely cited since its online publication at psychiatrist.com. Cases of sudden death in psychiatric patients can present a formidable challenge for physicians who seek to find the cause of death. Although a clear determination of the cause of death can be made in some cases, in many others, the death may remain unexplained even after careful post-mortem assessments. Some research has linked the use of antipsychotic drugs to sudden cardiac death. But studies that implicate antipsychotics may have underestimated the presence of other known causes of sudden and unexpected death. Dr. Manu and colleagues assessed the causes and risk factors for sudden death by contemporaneous investigations of all deaths occurring over a 26-year period in adults receiving care in a psychiatric hospital. Circumstances of death, psychiatric diagnoses, psychotropic drugs, and past medical history were extracted from the analyses of sudden, unexpected deaths. The explained and unexplained cases of sudden death were compared in terms of clinical variables and utilization of antipsychotics. They identified 100 cases of sudden death, 52 of which were unexplained. The explained and unexplained cases were similar in terms of psychiatric diagnoses and use of all psychotropic drug classes, including first and second generation antipsychotics. Dyslipidemia, diabetes, and both combined were more common in the unexplained group. The authors concluded that adequate monitoring and management of cardiometabolic risk factors would not only reduce morbidity and mortality directly related to cardiovascular disorders, but also decrease the risk of sudden cardiac death. Aggressive behavior in schizophrenia is a major burden for caregivers and healthcare personnel and contributes to stigmatization of the mentally ill. Aggression in schizophrenia is also linked with non-adherence to medication treatment. For these and many other reasons, the anti-aggressive effects of antipsychotics continue to be studied extensively. The authors of our next article, one of our CME activities this month, used data acquired in the European First Episode Schizophrenia Trial to analyze the effect of five different antipsychotic drugs on hostility in hundreds of patients in multiple countries. 
The study of hostility was not included in the original trial design, but the authors later hypothesized that the treatments would differ in their efficacy for hostility as measured by the positive and negative syndrome scale and that olanzapine would be superior to haloperidol. Their hypotheses were, in fact, supported by the analysis. While all treatments were successful in reducing hostility, the effect was not equal for all drugs. Olanzapine showed clear superiority during the first three months of treatment, the period when hostility and aggression are particularly difficult to control. This difference was reduced between months three and six and was no longer significant between months six and twelve. The superiority of olanzapine for early treatment of hostility and aggression and schizophrenia must be weighed against its adverse metabolic effects and propensity to cause weight gain. Our other CME article this month relates to trauma exposure and its health consequences in the elderly. A history of trauma is associated with poor mental and physical health, but little attention has been given to the ways that traumatic symptoms impact physical health in elderly civilians. To advance understanding of the issue, the authors conducted a study to address two important clinical questions. One, Does the experience of trauma have long-term health effects persisting into old age? And two, are elderly people who have experienced traumatic events and who have subsequent PTSD symptoms at particularly high risk for certain physical disorders? The authors retrospectively assessed data from a longitudinal study of a community-dwelling elderly French population. Psychiatric health, medical history, and clinical examination were assessed in over 1,600 subjects. Information on lifetime traumatic exposure, post-traumatic stress disorder, and psychiatric diagnoses was obtained, as well as measures of physical health. Results showed that subjects with trauma leading to recurrent re-experiencing of events were significantly more likely to have current depressive symptoms, current major depression, current anxiety disorder, and current psychiatric comorbidity than subjects who had not experienced trauma. Traumatized subjects who had recurrent re-experiencing symptoms and those who did not have re-experiencing symptoms showed a higher rate of cardioischemic diseases, notably angina pectoris. The authors concluded that clinicians should carefully monitor elderly patients with a history of exposure to traumatic events for vascular pathology, particularly in patients for which this exposure has led to re-experiencing symptoms. In Macbeth, William Shakespeare wrote of sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care. Sleep is a vital restorative and, for most of us, a welcome respite from the demands of waking life. But what happens when sleep doesn't come? The Journal of Clinical Psychiatry has three articles this month on sleep, one related to depression, one to ADHD, and one to PTSD. Recent reviews have shown that about 35% of patients with major depressive disorder also have insomnia. Conversely, 30% of patients with insomnia have MDD. With these concerns in mind, Dr. Fava and his colleagues conducted a study to assess the efficacy and safety of Zolpidem extended release in patients with insomnia associated with MDD. 
In their Phase One randomized controlled trial, almost 400 patients received open-label escitalopram plus either Zolpidem extended release or placebo for eight weeks. Responders continued with 16 weeks of double-blind treatment in Phase Two. The primary efficacy measure was the change from baseline in subjective total sleep time. The results show that Zolpidem extended release administered with escitalopram for up to 24 weeks was well-tolerated and improved insomnia and some sleep-related symptoms and next-day functioning in patients with MDD. However, it did not significantly augment the antidepressant response of escitalopram. It is well known that ADHD can cause sleep disturbances, but how do treatments for ADHD affect sleep? Craig Sermon and Thomas Roth did a post-hoc analysis of two placebo-controlled studies of adults with ADHD. In one study, patients were treated with amphetamine, and in the other, they were treated with triple-bead mixed amphetamine salts. Both of these studies found that sleep was worse at the end of the study than at the beginning of the study in 7-9% to of patients in both the placebo and drug groups. About one-third of the subjects receiving either treatment or placebo had meaningful sleep improvement. This shows that change in sleep quality during ADHD treatment may not be related to stimulant therapy. The authors conclude by calling for further studies that might reveal which patient characteristics or drug mechanisms are related to the resolution of sleep impairment in patients with ADHD. A study from Massachusetts General Hospital presents the first prospective, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of a non-benzodiazepine hypnotic agent for the treatment of PTSD and associated insomnia. Sleep disturbance is common among patients with PTSD. Disturbed sleep associated with PTSD is linked to increased depression, suicidality, substance use, and decreased quality of life and functioning. The authors conducted a three-week trial of esopiclone in adults suffering from both PTSD and sleep disturbance. The esopiclone pharmacotherapy was found to significantly improve patients' PTSD symptoms and quality of sleep in comparison with placebo. Greater improvement on PTSD measures with esopiclone treatment was present even when sleep-related items were excluded. This study provides initial evidence to suggest that pharmacotherapy with esopiclone may be associated with short-term improvement in overall PTSD severity and associated sleep disturbance. I direct you to our website, psychiatrist.com, for complete details on these three sleep studies. Anxiety disorders are common, costly, and debilitating. Most patients with anxiety disorders seek and receive their mental health care in primary health care settings. But many disorders go unrecognized or are inadequately treated. The authors of our next study examined patient satisfaction with care and the relationship of that satisfaction to type and quality of care received. 
Study data were obtained from telephone survey information on about a 1,000 primary care outpatients referred to the COM study. The survey covered the six months prior to referral. The fact that these patients were referred by their primary care practitioners for collaborative management indicates that there was some recognition by their primary caregivers of the seriousness of their conditions. Overall, 41% had received quality pharmacotherapy or quality psychotherapy, and a meager 8% had received both. About 45% were at least somewhat satisfied with their mental health care. As it turns out, receiving quality psychotherapy was the sole positive predictor of satisfaction with care. Plus, there was a dose-response relationship between the number of cognitive behavioral therapy elements consistently delivered and satisfaction with care. These findings lead to the obvious recommendation that CBT should be included more often if the aim is to improve satisfaction with care for anxiety disorders. The recommendation would be even stronger if it can be shown that inclusion of CBT also leads to improved symptomatic and functional outcomes. What can the experience of stage fright tell us about the phenomenon of social anxiety? Dr. Brian Cornwell and colleagues used a virtual reality testing condition to learn more about the mechanisms of social anxiety disorder. Subjects were asked to prepare and deliver a short speech in a virtual reality environment complete with a virtual audience. The testing condition was designed to provoke fear and anxiety in subjects with social anxiety disorder. The bodily responses of 16 subjects with social anxiety were recorded and compared with those of 16 healthy subjects. The subjects with social anxiety disorder reported consistently greater distress and anxiety relative to healthy individuals throughout the procedure. The subjects with social anxiety also showed potentiated startle particularly when it was time to deliver the speech, and they felt that the audience was looking at them. According to the researchers in the subjects with social anxiety, potentiated startle acted as an index for the fear of being negatively evaluated. To finish out our review of regular peer-reviewed articles in this month's issue, we share with you four articles that focus on women's health specifically on depression during pregnancy. The first of these shows promising new evidence for a non-medication approach to treating depression in pregnant women. Existing pharmacologic treatment options either have yet to be proven adequate or they involve substantial risk for the unborn child. Bright light therapy, a well-established treatment for seasonal affective disorder, is gaining recognition for its efficacy in treating depression in pregnant women. To gain more evidence on this treatment, the authors conducted a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study in 27 pregnant women with non-seasonal major depressive disorder. They were randomly assigned to bright white light or dim red light, the placebo, for five weeks. Clinical state was assessed and analyzed weekly. Results showed the bright light to be superior to the dim light in week-by-week analysis of change from baseline. 
The response rate at the end of the study was significantly greater for subjects using bright light versus placebo. Remission was attained by nearly 70% of subjects receiving bright light, as opposed to less than 40% for those receiving placebo. Bright light therapy, a non-medication treatment that is efficacious and safe and that can be used as either monotherapy or adjunctive therapy, is likely to have a major impact on antenatal depression treatment. Pregnant women with mood disorders and their physicians face a terrible dilemma. Should the pregnant woman continue with antidepressants with the risk that entails for the fetus? Or should she discontinue the antidepressant for the duration of the pregnancy, risking a relapse in the mother along with potential harm to the fetus from the mother's depressed state? The authors of our next study on antenatal depression examined 21 mother-infant pairs with antidepressant exposure during pregnancy. Mothers were assessed with the structured clinical interview for dsm 4 at 20 weeks, 30 weeks, and 36 weeks of pregnancy. At delivery, the investigators evaluated birth cord and maternal antidepressant levels. They also noted gestational weeks at birth and assessed neonatal outcomes using the peripartum event scale. Nine of 21 mothers had a major depressive episode, and seven of 21 infants experienced at least one transient perinatal event. The investigators found that the frequency of deliveries complicated by perinatal events was similar in depressed and non-depressed mothers. There was no significant association between perinatal events and ratio of birth cord to maternal antidepressant levels or maternal depression levels. Also, preterm birth, which occurred in 14% of infants, was not associated with birth cord to maternal metabolite concentration levels, depression levels, or exposure to fluoxetine. The authors of our next article underscore the same dilemma just discussed. The decision of whether to stop or continue antidepressant therapy in pregnancy remains a difficult one for women and their health care providers. Potential adverse effects have caused great concern. Since there are limited data on patterns of antidepressant prescribing in pregnancy, the authors wanted to assess whether pregnancy is a major determinant for discontinuation of antidepressants. In addition, they wanted to examine trends in antidepressant prescribing during pregnancy and identify characteristics of women who stopped their prescriptions during pregnancy. To this end, the authors obtained data from the United Kingdom for over 100,000 pregnant women who gave live birth between 1992 and 2006 and over 20,000 non-pregnant women. Regression analyses were used to compare time to last prescription in pregnant versus non-pregnant women and to identify particular characteristics. Despite a fourfold rise in antidepressant prescribing before and during pregnancy from 1992 to 2006, pregnancy was a major determinant of antidepressant discontinuation. The decline in use was most profound in the first six weeks of gestation. 
Only 10% of women treated before pregnancy still received antidepressants at the start of the third trimester, in contrast to 35% of non-pregnant women after a similar period of time. Concerns about adverse effects may explain these findings, but these concerns need to be balanced against the potential harm of inadequate treatment during pregnancy. In our final study on antenatal depression, Suri and colleagues assessed 64 infants born to mothers in one of three categories. The first group consisted of mothers with dsm for major depressive disorder who were treated with antidepressants during pregnancy. The second group also had a history of dsm for diagnosed major depressive disorder, but these women chose not to be treated with antidepressants during pregnancy. The third group consisted of non-psychiatric controls. Blinded raters used the Brazelton Neonatal Behavioral Assessment Scale to assess neurobehavioral development of these infants within a week of birth and again at age six to eight weeks. The raters found no significant differences between groups at either assessment point on any of the summary scores for the Brazelton Scale. Although the authors caution that studies with larger samples and longer follow-up are needed, they concluded that antidepressant exposure during pregnancy does not appear to have any major adverse effects on indices of infant neurobehavioral development during the first two months of life. That's all for the July peer-reviewed articles. I urge you to visit our website, psychiatrist.com, to discover the details of all these outstanding studies. In addition to these, there is much, much more in the July issue. At psychiatrist.com, you will find our academic highlights for July, which presents highlights from a series of teleconferences in which experts provide guidance for clinicians on assessing and treating ADHD. Gregory Manningly describes the way ADHD presents at different points in the lifespan. Leonard Adler talks about formulating treatment goals. Brendan Montano discusses how to recognize and assess adult ADHD in primary care. And Jeffrey Newcorn concludes with an overview of treatment strategies. Don't miss this clinically oriented offering from leading experts in adult ADHD. You will find a free online CME activity for the two CME articles we reviewed in this podcast, as well as other interactive activities from our CME Institute. And you will find our ever-engaging letters and book reviews. Join us online for all of these items and much more from the July issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.